Shabbat Shalom. I'd like to welcome you here to our community. I just uh, love the harvest. We're a place that really has a high value on truth. We lay a tremendous amount of weight when it comes to the truth. God is not just a God of love. He's a God of truth. So in the harvest, we embrace truth, we live truth, and we share truth. Thanks again for joining us today. Uh, I want to talk about Passover. This is, I think, number three in our series. And I'm going to talk about the resurrection of Jesus. The resurrection of Jesus in the context of Passover. The Holy Week of Passover memorializes many things, one of which is the spectacular resurrection of Jesus, the Lamb of God. Specifically, the Passover Lamb of God. But what does it mean? For us who believe, what does his resurrection entail for those of us who believe? Thank you for joining us as we explore the reverberations and ramifications of his rising. Now, before we jump in, I want to say once again that the resurrection has a context. The resurrection of Jesus is within the week of Passover. It's connected to the Passover. It cannot be disconnected. It's a holy week in which a number of things take place over a number of holy days that are marked on God's calendar. So this context of the resurrection is found in what is central to Christianity, earlier Messianic Judaism. It is Holy Communion or the Eucharist, uh, whatever you might call it, depending on your own religious background. But that is the centerpiece of the community of Messiah the renewed covenant or the new covenant that he actually instituted at the last Seder uh, while he was here on earth prior to his crucifixion. Now, when Paul talks about that night, he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 through 26, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. This is the basis for the Eucharist. This is the basis for Holy Communion. This is what's central to those who follow Jesus the Messiah. Now I want you to understand the thrust of Paul's point as he lays out the groundwork for which is going to be a centerpiece of our faith. Verse 26. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, as often as you take communion, as often as you take the Eucharist, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Not his resurrection, but his death. It's the death of Jesus that is emphasized here. It's the death of Jesus on the cross as the Passover Lamb of God that is to be the focus and the central core unifying event or rite or sacrament, whatever you want to call it, within Christianity. The death of Jesus on the cross. It's the death that provides an atonement for our sins. And on the heels of that death is that spectacular resurrection of Jesus into immortal life. Amazing in every way, right? 
but it comes on the heels of that death on the cross. And Paul says the emphasis of communion is the death, not the resurrection. The resurrection is really super important, absolutely, but it is second place to the central core emphasis of his death at Passover on the cross to take away our sins. Let's go over the chronology one more time before we jump into the resurrection. That will give us a context for the resurrection. So we have Passover, the last Passover supper that he had with his disciples. That took place on Thursday night, Nisan the 14th. Jesus instructs his disciples to get a Passover lamb, have it slaughtered, brought back to be roasted and eaten that same evening. They do. And then he shares a Passover meal with them that same night in accordance with Exodus 12, verses 6 and 8. Slaughter the lamb on the 14th, eat it in the evening. That's the 15th. So the next day is Friday. It's called Preparation Day. That's code for Friday. The Jews in the first century, they spoke Greek. And, and that, was like, that was like the second language. They were very familiar with, with Greek. And so uh, they spoke kind of the common Greek of the day. And so they had a special word or term for the sixth day. They counted the days. Day one, day two, day three, day four, day five. And they didn't say day six. They said preparation day. Why? Because the next day is the seventh day, which is Shabbat. The seventh day Sabbath. And that has a preparation day to it. No other holy day has a preparation day to it. Only the weekly Shabbat. And so they gave a term for that sixth day in relationship to the Sabbath. They called it the day of preparation. It was code for Friday. So that's Nisan the 15th. It's on the day of preparation that he is crucified, dead, and buried. The next day is the Sabbath of Passover week. And that one was a high day, a high day Sabbath, a special Sabbath, a, a, a doubly holy Sabbath, if you will, probably due to the fact that it was Nisan the 16th, the day that the largest, most popular sect of Judaism called the Holy Day of First Fruits. So when you have a, an annual holy day fall on a weekly Shabbat, the seventh-day Shabbat, when you find a holy day merging on, on that day, with that day, it becomes a high Sabbath or a great Sabbath, if you will. So that's Saturday. The following day is Sunday, or what the Bible, Bible refers to as the first day of the week. And it was on this day, Sunday, that God would raise his son early in the morning from the realm of death. That's chronology, Friday through Sunday, three days and three nights. Since they counted time inclusively as Jews in the first century, that's your three days and three nights, just like Jonah in the belly of the whale dies and it's resurrected on the third day. So let's look at the resurrection. Let's take a closer look at what took place in the resurrection of Jesus. John chapter 20, we'll work our way down. It says, now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Let's talk about Mary, Mary of Magdalene. She has quite the sordid history, 
if you will. If you remember the story, she's extremely demonized. She's an outcast. She encounters Jesus, and her life is changed. It says that Jesus cast out seven demons. Seven, of course, in terms of numerology, uh, carries with it the concept of completeness. And so really what's being communicated here, if you wanted to look at the numerology, is that she was completely demonized. She wasn't just, you know, when you look at demonization, um, it, comes, it comes like at different levels of being like influenced by demons, uh, uh, tormented by demons, controlled by demons. You have different levels of demonization. <clears throat> Excuse me. So when it says that he cast out seven de demons, that implies that she was extremely fully demonized, a tormented soul, alienated from everyone, <clears throat> living a life that's just broken and filled with chaos. I don't know um, if you had seen the movie The Chosen. It's a miniseries, actually. The very first episode of the very first season is the story of Mary of Magdalene. And if you've seen it, you know what I'm talking about. She is a broken soul. If you haven't seen it, I encourage you to see it. Because when you understand what the biblical text is saying, it paints, it paints a picture of a person that is, uh, well, not the one that you're going to bring home uh, for dinner or to your group or whatever. Uh, pretty messed up person. And here she is. Here she is. At the site of the crucifixion when many of the disciples were already hiding. She's there. Not only was she there at the crucifixion, she goes along with those that are going to bury him, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. She's present with them at his burial, even at the burial. And then she comes early on Sunday morning, approximately at sunrise. <clears throat> and she sees that the stone that sealed the tomb was rolled back. She's astonished. I mean, the stone that's in front of, of the opening of a tomb in the Middle East, in Israel, you're not going to move that by yourself. It's going to take several pretty strong people to move a stone away from the opening. And so she knows something dramatic has, has happened. And so what it says here in verse 2 is she ran, went to Simon Peter, Peter, and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb. We do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together. But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw linen cloths lying there. But he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, followed him, went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which they had been on Jesus' head, not lying in the, with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. So these two disciples, very close to Jesus, they're there at the tomb. They actually look into the tomb. They're actually seeing the grave clothes, and yet the body of Jesus is gone. You can imagine what's going on in, in their heads, in their minds. You know, the scriptures say they didn't understand 
that Jesus would, was, would rise from the dead. Even though he told them that, they did not get that. And so they're pretty bewildered here at this point, trying to figure out what's going on. Verse 8, Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. Interesting. They stood there for a while. They probably conversed. And in their bewilderment, they decided, let's go back home. And they left. They went back home. Verse 11, but Mary stood, weeping outside the tomb. Mary didn't leave. The rest of them, the men, they left. Mary stays by herself, weeping outside the tomb. Goes on to say, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white, sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. And there's some questions that we should wrestle with here. Number one, why was Mary allowed to see the angels? Why not the men? I mean, the men were just there. This is just, we're talking about a few moments here that has transpired. They didn't get to see the angels. God did not open their eyes to see the angels, but he opened Mary's. Why Mary's eyes and not the eyes of the men? After all, She's a woman, not just a woman, but a woman with a past. I want to say that for all the men and women who think a woman's place is only in the home and not in spiritual high places, listen up. This story here is remarkable. What this means, I think, is still being sorted out. But this, there's some powerful things happening here that I think represent some changes that are historic for their day as well as for ours. God could have opened the eyes of the men and he didn't. Why not? Why not? Verse 13. They said to her, the angels, they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken, taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. She's beside herself. Why does Mary care so much? Why is she so troubled? Why did she not go to her home like the other disciples? Was it because she had a horrendous past? Seven demons? An outcast, tormented, and thoroughly demonized. Yeah, she encountered the love of God in Jesus. When you're really at a place that Mary's at, you lose your hope. You believe the lie that you're unlovable, that you're in some way trash unredeemable, and so you cave in to all of that deception and you live in that alienation 
And yet in our encounter with Jesus, Jesus turns that upside down. Jesus loves her with an eternal love, embraces her, sets her free from her demons. What do you think that meant to her? How do you think that impacted her psyche, her heart, right? What do you think that did for her? She was overwhelmed with the love of God in the encounter with Jesus, the Lamb of God. In Luke chapter 7, we read a really interesting story that I think kind of relates to the person of a Mary or the category of a, a person in Mary's um, situation. Let me read it. Jesus said to him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Oh, tell me. Two men were in debt to a banker. One owed 500 silver pieces, the other 50. Neither of them could pay up. So the banker canceled both debts. Which of the two would be more grateful? It's a great story. It's a great question. And I think the answer's obvious, right? Who's going to be more thankful for the debt that was canceled? The one that owed 500 pieces of silver or the other one that only owed 50? Simon answered, I suppose the one who was forgiven the most. That's right said Jesus. Then turning to the woman, but speaking to Simon, he said, do you see this woman? I came to your home. You provided no water for my feet. Now I want you to stop for a moment. The backdrop of the story is this woman is also a social outcast. Most commentaries say that she's probably a prostitute. So she's looked down upon. There's a lot of shame uh, surrounding her life. And here she is encountering the love of Jesus, just like Mary Magdalene. Then turning to the woman, but speaking to Peter or Simon, he said, do you see this woman? I came to your home. You provided no water for my feet, but she rained tears on my feet and dried them with her hair. You gave me no greeting, but from the time I, I arrived, she hasn't quit kissing my feet. You provided nothing for freshening up, but she has soothed my feet with perfume. Impressive, isn't it? She was forgiven many, many sins, and so she is very, very grateful. If forgiveness is minimal, the gratitude is minimal. Then he spoke to her, I forgive your sins. That set the dinner guests talking behind his back. Who does he think he is forgiving sins? But he ignored them and said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. You, you can imagine that room as this woman rises to her feet in the awareness that her sins are now forgiven, that she is now released from the shame of the life she was living, 
that she discovered in Jesus the love of God and the forgiveness of her sins. I bet it was pretty quiet as she made her exodus out of that home. Her sins, though they were many, were forgiven. She left that day with great peace and great joy. So Mary stays there at the grave. The others have already left. She's probably there weeping because her sins were many compared to those men that were just there, the disciples. They didn't have the past that she had. Her past was so messed up and the shame so great that the encounter of the love of God changed her and she became more devoted than anyone else. And there she is at the tomb, refusing to leave, weeping uncontrollably because the body of Jesus is gone. It's the Lamb of God who delivered her from her past, from her torments, her alienation, from her shame. Verse 14. Having said this, the angel speaking to her and her responding, says she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned, she recognized him and said in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means my teacher. And Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. It's a powerful story of the resurrection of Jesus. And probably the most devoted of all his disciples, Mary of Magdalene, the most broken one. She refuses to leave. And in that place, she encounters the risen Lord. She sees things. She has an account that the other ones didn't. They missed that for whatever reason. They weren't chosen for that. She was. And here she is encountering Jesus in his resurrection. She rushes towards him. She grabs him. He says, don't, don't stop. I have not yet ascended to my father. Now, if, if, if we understand the week of Passover, we have a holy day called first fruits. And that first fruits has a context. It comes on the heels of the Passover lamb being slaughtered and eaten. Let me read this to you. This is a holy day, probably one that is least understood in terms of uh, reading what we have in uh, Leviticus. But I think it's fascinating. Not much is said. That's part of the problem. But as we reinterpret that, not reinterpret it, but revisit that in the resurrection of Jesus, all of it becomes very clear. Leviticus chapter 23 and verse 9 says, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land that I give you and reap its harvest, you shall, shall bring the sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest. And he shall wave the sheaf before the Lord so that you may be accepted. 
on the day after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. So in the week of unleavened, or in the week of Passover, we basically have a number of holy days. We have the first one, Nisan the 14th, that's Passover. That's where the lambs are killed in the afternoon on the 14th. And then we have unleavened bread. It's a week-long celebration. Day one's a holy day. Day seven's a holy day. And then within that week, we also have the holy day of first fruits. We just read about that right now. You shall wave the sheaf before the Lord so that you may be accepted. Somehow this holy day has to do with us being accepted before God. And when do we do that? On the day after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. The day after the Sabbath of Passover week. That's, that's, you can read that either as the day after unleavened bread, day one, or you can read that as after uh, the Sabbath of Passover week. We're not going to get into the weeds on that, uh, but just keep in mind that it's on this day that we are accepted. And it's called first fruits. They take the first fruits of the harvest, the first harvest of springtime. They've come out of the dead of winter. Winter is kind of a type and shadow of death, right? Everything is dead. And it's out of that that we have our first signs of life. And then we're to gather that, bring it in, wave it before God. And in the waving of the sheep of the first fruits of that new life, we're accepted before God. That is the backdrop to the festival of first fruits. First fruits deals with life. It deals with resurrection, if you will, life from the dead. So the fulfillment of first fruits would, of course, be the resurrection of Yeshua within the week of Passover, just as we see it foreshadowed in Leviticus 23. He is the first fruits of those who have died, the first to rise to immortal life. He ascended into heaven as our first fruits offering. Mary, don't touch me. I've not yet ascended. He's the Passover lamb. He's fulfilling the imagery of Passover, taking away the sin of the world through his death and, and outpoured blood. And it's in that resurrection that he's going to then ascend before the Father in heaven. And he's going to be the first fruits of the dead. Just as pictured in the first fruits of, of the barley harvest in the springtime. And it's in him, before God in the heavenlies, that we are accepted. In him, we are now accepted. He is our first fruits offering. Before the Father and before all the angels were adopted as his own children. More of that in a moment. Jesus says to Mary, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary, a woman, a woman with a past, she's the one that's chosen. She's the one that is sent by Yeshua as his authoritative representative to bring a world-changing revelation of his resurrection to these other disciples, these men who are the disciples, these men who are apostles, if you will. She now is a messenger of Jesus. She now has been granted authority to represent him.
and she has the authority to reveal to the men some things about Jesus that they did not know and did not understand. She's going to help them understand. She has information. She has words from God to help them with this revelation of what's taking place in the resurrection of Jesus that they are yet to understand. She shares the words which are authoritative coming from God with these men. Think about that for a moment. She's sharing and informing the men with the authoritative words of God. Goes on to say, Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. What things? The revelation that he's going to send to his father. There's information that she's going to give. Jesus sent her. She's a messenger of God now. She too is a sent one, an apostle of sorts. I want to encourage our women. Women, be of great courage. God has and is choosing you to also represent him, to also speak on his behalf, his authoritative words. You know, this reminds me of Psalm 68, 11. It says, the Lord provided the message. The women who proclaimed it were a great army. Wycliffe, the Wycliffe Bible says the women preached it. The women who preached it were a great army. In summary, men and women together are called to represent Jesus, the resurrected one. Together we are called to preach and proclaim the good news of Jesus in his death, and in his resurrection until he returns. Why? Because he is the risen one. And because he has risen, so shall we who believe. So we as men and women together are out proclaiming this good news so that others too can believe and have in him the promise of forgiveness and life eternal, a resurrection and a place in the age to come. Paul states in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, but now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. He uses the actual terminology of first fruits. In the Jewish ear, you're connecting the dots. You're going back to Leviticus. You're thinking about this ancient holy day, which is a revelation of the Messiah. All of the holy days reveal who the Messiah is and what he's going to accomplish in and through his life. So Paul says, but now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. Yeah, he's going to fulfill the holy day of first fruits. He's going to become the first fruits of those in the realm of death. Verse 24, or verse 21. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ, all will be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ, the firstfruits, like the barley grain that turned green before all the other grains, right? Jesus is the firstfruits. After that, those who were Christ's at his coming. He's the firstfruits from the realm of the dead. After that, everyone else that's in the realm of the dead will also rise through him. He's the first fruits. 
Then later, all the other ones come forth. Verse 35. Well, I want to read this. Christ is the first fruits. After that, those who are Christ's at his coming. So when he returns, all the dead shall rise in him. All the, the believers who, who had died will come to life. Verse 35. But someone will say, how are the dead raised and with what kind of body do they come? You fool. That which you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And that which you sow, you do not sow the body, which is to be, but a bare grain, perhaps of wheat or something else. But God gives it a body just as he wished, and to each of the seeds a body of its own. All flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one flesh of men, another flesh of beasts, another flesh of birds, and another of fish. There are also heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly one and the glory of the earthly one is another. There is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. So in short, in the resurrection, we're going to be glorified, immortalized. We're going to have like these limitless bodies in terms of all that they can do. And, and they're going to be indestructible and beautiful in every way. But they're going to be uniquely distinct from one another. We're going to be completely, uniquely distinct just as we, as we are now. Just as, as unique as each human being is, so will we be in the resurrection. We'll just have glamorized, immortalized, glorified physical bodies, but unique in every way and recognizable. Verse 37, and that which you sow, you do not sow the body which is to be, but a bare grain, perhaps of wheat or something else. I'm sorry, let me run down to verse 42. So also in the resurrection of the dead, it is sown a perishable body. It is raised an imperishable body. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, but it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. First the physical, then the spiritual. I remember my father when I was a very young boy. I have some very early memories of my dad. He is beautiful, strong a decorated hero from the Korean War. I mean, I just, you know, almost idolized him. Many years later, I began to watch his decline. He became weak and feeble. <clears throat> he had some health issues, chronic health issues, including Alzheimer's late in life. And his Alzheimer's took away his dignity as he reverted to his early childhood, both in his cognitive faculties as well as having to wear diapers. I had to help take care of him. I mean, it was an honor to do that. But I'm telling you, it broke me. It broke me to see my dad so weak. After he died, I stayed to make sure his body was handled with dignity. He was gone. All that remained was, was his lifeless physical body. 
a broken and bruised body. That's what we buried. Truly, like a lifeless seed, we planted it in the ground, knowing that that bruised and broken body is going to rise again in power and splendor and glory. Now, except for the final generation, this is every believer's journey. Life, death, and resurrection. Verse 50. Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep. Okay, that's a metaphor for death. We shall not all die, but we will all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. When at the last trumpet, not before, not before, not in heaven. No, the change comes at the last trumpet. Verse 53, for this perishable must put on imperishable. And this mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on imperishable and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? And when does that take place? Not at death, not in heaven, but when Jesus returns, and we rise from the grave. That's the context. Read it. That's the context. It's in the resurrection of Jesus when our bodies are changed that we're able to say, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? When I see my dad again, when you see your loved one again, that's what we're going to be saying. We'll mock death. Death, where's your sting? It's over. Even death will be eliminated in the lake of fire. Death, the realm of death itself, is gone forever, consumed in the lake of fire. It's then and only then that we're able to say, oh, death, where's your sting? You know, my dad, his departure, my loss, it still stings. It still stings. I'm sorry. That sting for me will remain until I see him again in his full strength, in the strength of the resurrection. No one rises from the dead until the return of Jesus. He's the first fruits. And after that, in his coming, we shall rise like him into immortal life. 1 Corinthians 1 and 58. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Yeah, Paul's capstone, this, this final verse that he gives is, in light of the resurrection, in light of the fact that Jesus has risen from the dead, because he has risen, you too shall rise. We don't have immortality. We're promised immortality. But in that promise of immortality, we get to live life in a totally different context than those who are mortal and have no hope. 
because we have the promise of immortality, we can live life with great courage, great boldness. We can love like God loves. It doesn't matter what happens to us, right? We can lay our lives down for the sake of the gospel because we have the promise of eternity. This is what the resurrection means for us. What the resurrection of Jesus means is that we too shall rise. This is good news as well, right? This is something that the world needs to hear. Now, let's come back to uh, our resurrection story and we'll kind of like uh, bring that to a close as well. Uh, let me make some summary remarks and, and then some application. Passover is not just a day. It's a week-long celebration with, I think, four holy days, one of which is first fruits on what we now call or what we now call the resurrection day. This is a holy appointed time on God's calendar. It does not require a corporate gathering. It is an appointed time to celebrate. Celebrate what? New life. The new life that we have in Christ. The promise of eternity. This is the celebration of the resurrection of Jesus. The holy day, first fruits, is when we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. He fulfills the meaning and purposes of the holy day of first fruits. This is why we clear our schedules to take Sunday and make it a special holy day for us and our family and our friends, the Sunday of Passover week. We celebrate the Passover Seder. That's the big emphasis. The secondary emphasis is, in fact, the resurrection. And so it's at that time that we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. We have a big festival meal wine and fellowship in honor of the one who willingly died for us the very same one whom god raised from the dead honor yeshua on this day and he will honor you john the revelator says this worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power riches and wisdom might and honor and glory and blessing and every created thing which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them i heard saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever and the four living creatures kept saying amen and the elders fell down and worshiped I think the most appropriate appeal I can make in terms of application is keep the Passover every year. Celebrate the Holy Week that commemorates his death until he comes again. When you take communion, whether that's daily, weekly, monthly, yearly, whenever you take communion, exalt him in his death. Proclaim his death until he comes again. That's the emphasis of the week, not resurrection, but his death. Resurrection is a secondary, and, and, and if I can say this, it's, it's, it's a minor holy day in comparison with Passover. I know we've turned that all around. We made Easter the big thing. We minimized his death. I don't know why we did that. In fact, I'm going to teach on that. I think I know why, but I'm going to teach on that. Uh, but I don't have time right now to go into that. But suffice it to say, 
The week of Passover is about his death until he comes again. The Passover Seder is a commemoration of his death until he comes again. It's in his death that we have the forgiveness of our sins. It's in his death that we have a new covenant. The resurrection, very important, absolutely. But it is second to the primary emphasis of his death. So keep the Passover, enjoy the week of Passover, and also celebrate and enjoy Resurrection Sunday. Now I want to give opportunity uh, to those that are listening to receive Jesus into your life as your Lord and Savior. I know some of you have not done this, and I want to give you the opportunity to make him your Lord and Savior. It's, it's the season of Passover. There's no better time than right now. And all you have to do is three things. Number one, humble yourself. Confess to him that you're a sinner, that you're guilty. You're bound for hell. Then turn away from your sins and turn towards him for forgiveness, cleansing, and salvation. Invite him into your life as your Lord and Savior. He will forgive your sins. He will cleanse you. He will cause you to come up and, and, and rise up into a new way of life, a new uh, lease on life, if you will, a liberty that you've never experienced. If you're ready to do this, I want to lead you in a prayer. And if you pray this prayer by faith and in sincerity, he will come in and save you and forgive you and cause you to be born again. Just repeat after me. Lord Jesus, I am a sinner bound for hell. I regret and am deeply sorry for my sins. I turn from my sin and towards you for forgiveness, cleansing, and salvation. I believe you died for the sin of the world and that you rose on the third day. I believe you've become King of kings and Lord of lords. I surrender my life to you. I invite you into my heart as my Lord and Savior from this day forth. In your name, I pray. Amen. If you've prayed this prayer in sincerity and faith, you are born again. Let us know if you've prayed this prayer. We'd like to know. We'd like to share in the joy of that. And then join a Bible-believing church and start your new journey with a community who also believes. May the season of Passover be rich and full of God's presence. Shabbat Shalom.